All right. Hey, everybody. Live. We're in the green room and uh, we're wondering if tech stocks are going to go above 11K, 12K. We'll see what happens. Bitcoin sitting about 20. It's a very interesting market. But we've got some amazing guests and we're going to do some quick introductions working backwards. So we'll start with Matt. We'll go to Brayden. And of course, we'll go to Natalie and one of Marshall. And Matt, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about today? Uh, I'm calling in from uh, Reno, Tahoe, and I'm the founder and CEO of Unsolvable Domains. And we're going to be talking about NFTs, blockchain and crypto. Excellent. I have the r.nft domain, courtesy of Unstoppable. Thank you very much. Um, Brandon, what's going on? Where are, we talking? Where are you calling in from? Reno, the happy, the biggest city, little city in the world. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to be talking about domains too. Yeah. Cool. Very, very cool. One of my favorite cities. We head up in Mount Rails all the time. Natalie, uh, where are you calling in from? What are we talking about? I am lucky enough to be calling in from Hawaii today and uh, president and chief commercial officer at Guild. And we'll be talking about skilling and mobility for the frontline workforce. One of our BT150 winners. Congratulations. So, and of course, Marshall, what's going on? Where are you? I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm going to be talking about my new book, The Earned Life. The Earned Life. It's an honor to have you here. Well, I'm going to turn it back to you, Al. Um, you can do the countdown and we are ready to go live. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guests, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology news contributor for, on Fox Business News, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC, and Wall Street Journal. He's also a global sought after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with Vala Ashra, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. You can follow him at Vala Afshar on Twitter. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful anal analyses such as this show on ZDNet. So, but it's not about us, it's about our amazing guests, and more importantly, who do we have to kick it off today? Ray, what an honor for you, me, and our audience 
to have Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, best-selling author of a new book, The Earned Life, on our show. Dr. Goldsmith uh, is one of the two-time winner, uh, the only two-time winner of Thinker's 50 Award for number one leadership thinker in the world. Dr. Goldsmith has been ranked as the number one executive coach in the world, a top 10 business thinker for the past eight years, and the inaugural winner of the Lifetime Award for Leadership by the Harvard Institute of Coaching. Dr. Goldsmith is the author or editor of 51 books, Ray. <laughs> just, just 51 books, including three New York Times bestselling, bestsellers. Four now. Four now. That's right. This is breaking news. Four. Exactly. <laughs> four now. Uh, including uh, the number one hit uh, that, have sold, that have sold over two and a half million copies, translated into 32 languages, and listed bestsellers in 12 countries. Dr. Goldsmith's books... What Got You Here Won't Get You There and Trigger have been recognized by Amazon as two of the top 100 leadership and success books ever written, ever. Dr. Goldsmith's latest New York Times bestselling book, which we're going to talk about, is The Earned Life, Lose Regret, Choose Fulfillment. He's an exceptional follow on Twitter, at Coach Goldsmith. Welcome, uh, Dr. Goldsmith, to the Shop TV. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm sorry I cut your bio to about a tenth because we only have 20 minutes. <laughs> it was more than adequate. <laughs> you know, we're so excited to have you. You're one of the top coaches ever of all time, management coaches that are out there, executive coach, life coach. And when you think about it, it's like, why, why do people need someone to help you every day? What is behind this executive coaching? And really, like, what, what can you benefit from there? Well, I have someone help me every day. I have someone call me. I have someone call me on the phone every day for almost twenty-five years to help me. Now, why do I have someone call me every day? My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do any of the stuff I teach by myself, and I need help. Who are we kidding? We all need help. If you look at my book, The Earned Life, did you read the first six pages? Look who those people are, right? Uh, President of the World Bank, CEO of Pfizer, CEO of the year, CEO of the year, CEO of the year, winner of the president. They're godlike people. Hey, they all need help. I've got another question. How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? Yeah, everyone. 10. Why do they have a coach? <laughs> Why do they have a coach? Well, they need, they're smart. They're smart. We all need help. Who are we getting here? You, you, in, your, in your book, uh, you talk about uh, a reference to every breath is a new me. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a philosophical Buddhist. I'm not a metaphysical or religious Buddhist. I'm a philosophical Buddhist. And uh, my Buddhist, um, Buddhism is really big on the concept of impermanence. And a key theme in the book is the theme of every, every time we take a breath, we're starting over. It's a new me. And everything that happened before was done by an infinite set of people that we can refer to as those previous me's. And a good exercise is I ask people, you know, think about all the previous renditions of you and think about all the gifts they've given you that's listening to me. And think about all the nice things they've done. And then say, if any group of people did that many nice things, what do you say to those people? Most people say, thank you. Well, you know, that's a great way to look at life. Whatever we did, we did. Those previous renditions of us and forgive them for whatever mistakes they made and kind of move on. So you Dr. Know, Goldsmith, continuous reinvention, is that? 
Yeah, somebody asked me, does Buddhism believe in reincarnation? Buddhism is nothing but reincarnation. Life is constant reincarnation. Yeah, and that's uh, you know that that's that's that whole circle of life, right? You come back, and you know, what you give, what you get back, and it all comes together. But you also mentioned something that's interesting here: that credibility has to be earned twice. Why twice? Well, you know, credibility is this being trusted and being respected for being good at what you do. Part of it is you need to be competent. You know, you need to become, you need to to deserve respect, but two, you need to be acknowledged. People need to be willing to talk to you because they have to know who you are. And when I talk about credibility must be earned twice, I talk about something called the credibility matrix. Peter Drucker said, our mission in life is to make a positive difference, not to prove how smart we are and not to prove how right we are. Well, we get so wrapped up sometimes proving how smart we are and right we are, we forget we're not here on earth to do that. We're here to make a positive difference. Well, the concept of credibility must be earned twice. I say you have to, number one, prove your prove your worth it to others so they respect you. But number two, you have to be worth it. And so part of this is my book, What Got You Here, What Went You There? I talk about the problem of overselling. People try to prove themselves too much, win arguments, prove they're right all the time. And there's a whole book about that. And then I did another book with Sally Hooks called How Women Rise. And that book talks about people who don't try to prove themselves enough underselling. Yeah. I've done now a bunch of podcasts and I ask people, do you tend to oversell or undersell? Most people actually feel they undersell. And, you know, when people who undersell, I've got to, I'm going to teach you guys a three question coaching process. It's a killer. Are you ready? All right, let's go. Yes, please. Ask them three questions. Question number one Would the world be a better place if you became more powerful, influential, or a worse place? Ooh. Better place. Do you feel uncomfortable trying to be more powerful, influential? They say, yes. And I say, what's more important, making the world a better place or being comfortable? Well, get over it. <laughs> you know, we've had probably 20 some odd thinkers, 50 on our show, and you are universally loved. Whether it's Dory Clark, uh, Alex Osterwalder, Whitney Johnson, Tiffany Boba, uh, your your co-host uh, Eminem uh, podcast, uh, you know, uh, the, it, so it's 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 just amazing uh, how much uh, you've changed the world and how much you respect you have, uh, and 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 it's giving you the privilege of again coaching the biggest titans of the respective industries, and you talk about the biggest challenge is that successful people you coach are perhaps maybe addicted to achievement. Right. Uh, can you talk about that? I mean, I, it, it, it's, it, it, I mean, it, it intuitively makes sense to me that these folks that are CEOs of the largest companies in the world naturally would be addicted to achievement. That's their whole life path. So right. what, how, do you, how do you ground them and, and, and uh, bring meaning to the work that they do? Well, you know, very important point. I talk about three things, our levels of aspiration. That's the higher purpose. Why am I here? Our day-to-day -day actions. That's what am I doing now? And then achievement is a related to our ambitions. That's what we want to achieve. Well, the problem is one thing I talk about in the book, and I learned this from the Bhagavad Gita is never become attached to results. Never place your value as a human being on the results of what you do. That's a fool's game for two reasons. One is we don't have total control over the results. 
I didn't invent COVID. You didn't invent COVID. We don't have total control over the results. But two, which is more important, let's say you achieve the results. How much happiness, satisfaction, and peace do you get out of that? A day, a week? It's fleeting. You got to do more, 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 more. The Buddhist term is the hungry ghost. And you never become addicted to results. One of my clients is, it talks about in the book is Albert Berla. Albert was a CEO of Pfizer. I said, Albert, Albert, how'd you go? How you doing last year? Hey, pretty good year. You know, came up with this COVID thing and as a vaccine, good. And, you know, stock price, all time high, employee engagement, highest ever, pride in the company, new book, CEO of the year. I said, Albert, that's great. What's your problem? He said, I got a huge problem next year. <laughs> Next year, well, if Albert's identity is he has to beat last year, he might as well cash it in. Yeah. Michael Phelps won 25 gold medals. What do you think about doing after winning number 25? Killing himself. Unbelievable. Couldn't Unbelievable. top it again. But, but Dr. Goldsmith, throughout my career, I've constantly been reminded that, you know, effort get noticed, but results get awarded. How do you, and have a bias towards results. Like every manager, every leader I've worked for kept driving home the results piece. Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to achieve results. What I'm saying is do not make your ego and values a human being based so upon those results. I see. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the greatest college basketball coach in history was John Wooden. Yes. You know what John Wooden never fixated on winning. You know what he said? Do your best. Yeah. You do, you do your okay. best and you win, you be proud. You do your best and you lose, you be proud. You don't do your best and you win, you have nothing to be proud of. Wow. His yeah. whole by the way, Coach K at Duke, the same thing. Yeah, Coach K was the same. What's his biggest motto? Next play, next play, next play. Coach K, you hit the great shot, jump on down. What's he say? Next play. Next play. You hit the yep. bad shot. Next play. <laughs> Don't focus on the results. Focus on what you're doing and the process which lead to the results. The key, though, is never place your values a human based on results, especially never assume happiness comes from results. Yeah. Now, one of the guys, do you ever have Safi Bacall on your show? No, not yet. No. I have Safi. Safi's a great guy. One of the guys in our little group was, uh, let me tell you what inspired the book. Over yes, COVID, please. I had 60 incredible people over the COVID period. We met with each other every weekend over COVID for six hours. My friend Mark Thompson and I did these Zoom calls for six hours over COVID. And these were like amazing people. Pau Gasol, the basketball star, Curtis Martin. <laughs> NFL Hall of Fame. We had Telly Leung, the Broadway star, wow. president of the World Bank, head of the Olympic Committee, you know, blah, 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 on and on. Amazing people. Every week they talked about their lives. And, you know, that's what that's what really inspired the book. And, you know, these are all hyper achievers. One of them is Safi Call. Anyway, Safi got a PhD in physics from Stanford. He uh, wrote a great book called Loon Shots, New York Times bestseller. He tens of millions of dollars, started four businesses, consulted to presidents, blah, blah, blah. So, so Safi said he finally realized from Curtis Martin in our group that he used to think that happiness was dependent upon achievement. And he finally learned that happiness and achievement are independent variables. You can be totally happy and achieve nothing. You can be totally happy and achieve a lot. You can be miserable and achieve nothing and miserable and achieve a lot. He said happiness and achievement are different variables. And, you know, I told him, I said, Safi, number one, good. Number two, look, how much achievement have you already had? 
You already got a PhD from Stanford. You're, you're already New York Times bestseller, millions of dollars, consult the president. You're already a 99.999 on achievement. You really think getting up to a 99 is going to matter? It's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. Amazing. How, how do you avoid this trap of existential regret? I mean, this is what you're really talking about here, right? I mean, folks that are hyperachievers that never really fully appreciate the achievement. So how does that work? How do you get out of that trap? Well, the one thing is, I think, always looking at life as a cons constant series of restarting and forgiving yourself for whatever you did in the past. I mean, regret is I wish I would have. Look, whatever we did, we did. You know, and you know, hey, you know, one thing you left out on my introduction. I was a little surprised you left it out of my introduction. It was a good introduction, but you left out a, an incredible skill I have: the ability to screw something up every day. You, you, managed, <laughs> you left that out. You left that out of my introduction. I love the humility. I love it. I so love I, it. I have the phenomenal ability to screw something up every day. Well, you know. That's, <laughs> That's life. That's life. I, we all I, do. You know, I'm 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 curious. Someone who's written, edited 51 books, multiple four New York Times bestselling books. Um, every book brings you the same amount of joy when you complete the book. Where where does the joy? Where does the where does the motivation come from in terms of recording all your lessons learned? And, and leaving an incredible legacy that you have. What's the driver? What's the driver? Well, now first, I've got to give you the secret of writing four New York Times bestsellers. Are you ready for the great secret? All right. Other than, other than being super smart? Okay, yes. <laughs> no, I, I did not write any of those books. Okay. <laughs> These books are all written by my friend Mark Ryder. It also says Marshall Goldsmith, Mark Ryder. He writes the books. I didn't write any of those books. I have the ideas. He writes the books. We got a partnership. Oh, no. Great partnership. Yeah, the key to being a New York Times bestselling writer is find someone who can write. Okay. <laughs> wow. I, 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 that's, that's awesome. Well, this is where one plus one equals three. So you have the great thinker, the great writer, and that's yeah, an amazing, yeah. powerful combination. Write. He's a, he is fantastic, by the way. He is an incredible, I, I can say, I'm not bragging, that my new book is incredibly well written. I didn't write it. He wrote it. <laughs> I have the ideas. I talk. We tape it. He writes. We discuss it. I edit it. And it's, we got a book. Please define earned life for us. I know we only have a few minutes. Please define Yeah, we don't want to get there. The earned life. We're living an earned life when the choices, risks, and effort we make in each moment align with an overarching purpose in our lives, regardless of the outcome. And again, the key to that is regardless of the outcome. You know, that's a great point there. Uh, a quick question for you. When you think about this, I, I noticed something in the book that you said something about empathy not being a good thing, right? Yeah. Why is that? I mean, we always learn that, oh, be empathetic, right? I, I be be aware. I was just like you till I was about 70. I thought, well, empathy, I thought empathy sounds like teddy bears and little puppies and fuzzy things. And how could it be bad? Well, in the book, I talk about there are four faces of empathy and each could be good and each could be a disaster. Yep. The first one is the empathy of understanding. I understand where you're coming from. Could be good, but could be used by propaganda people, advertiser. People use it all the time to manipulate people. 
Number two is the empathy of feeling. I feel your pain. Well, that sounds glamorous and glorious. Not so much. One of the guys in our group is Dr. Patrick Frias. Oh, wow. He's the head of San Diego Children's Hospital, Brady Children's Hospital. Yep. You know what? His, as an intern, he said the first two months he was a doctor, he went home and cried every night. Wow. You know what he had to learn? I got to let go of that. Wow. Yeah, I, I feel your pain sounds good. Hey, Dr. Dr. Jim Downing, head of St. Jude Children's Hospital is in our group too. Hey, he's got to watch kids die every day. Oh, yeah. he can't he can't carry that home he's got a yeah. wife he's got kids he's got grandkids gotta let it go empathy of caring sounds good I, I love this part of the book the empathy of caring now that sounds good right i care about you could nothing bad about that eh, 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 wrong i've got an example of a guy that cared too much now what i love about the example is he's a hedge fund manager of all things the last person you think will care about anybody is a hedge fund manager well, I'm watching this one hedge fund manager who's worth a billion dollars interview another guy who's worth $3 billion. And this is a long time ago when $3 billion was a lot of money. So they're doing the interview. And the billionaire guy says to the other guy, he says, why don't you have a hedge fund anymore? And the rich guy said, well, I'm not as good. Why aren't you as good? You know more than you ever knew. He said, you'd make a fortune if you had your own fund. Why don't you have an external fund? He said, you know what my problem is? He said, I started caring. <laughs> I started caring. He said, when I was young, I didn't care about other people. I just, you know, made investments. And now, obviously, I made people hundreds of billions of dollars, but I lost hundreds of billions of dollars. Wow. And when I was younger, I didn't care. I got older. I started thinking, this is somebody's retirement account, right. the kids' yeah. college fund. You know, so yeah. I started caring and I became much less effective. Wow. It's amazing too conservative, wouldn't take a risk, less effective. That's why medical doctors don't operate on their kids. No, yeah. you can't they care too much. COVID was a disaster of people that care too much in the healthcare world. Okay. And then the final empathy is the empathy of doing, you know, I'm, you know, I don't just care. I do something for you, but that can lead to dependency. That can yep. lead to childlike behavior. So I write about the phases of empathy. They can all be very good and there's a dark side. They can all be very bad. That is a chapter everyone should definitely take a look at. We're here with Marshall Goldsmith, author of The Own Life and Thinker's 50 Master. We're here and follow him on Twitter at Coach Goldsmith. Marshall, we didn't spend enough time with you, but thank you so much for being here on Amazing. the show. Amazing. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for all. expanding our minds. Bye-bye. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> that was... That was... That was 20 minutes of like a three credit undergrad course or maybe grad course uh, unpacking everything that was such juxtaposition, like results, empathy, and a whole different way of looking at things. A anyway, uh, wow. Okay, our next amazing guest, and we only bring amazing folks on, on Disrupt TV, is Natalie McLeod, President and Chief Operating Officer of Guilt. Natalie leads Guild's employer-facing teams driving the company's go-to-market and growth efforts. Natalie's a veteran executive with a track record of growth and career focus on technology and future of work. Prior to Guild, Natalie served as president and CEO of Domino Data Labs, general manager of workplace analytics and my analytics at the small company called Microsoft, uh, CRO at Volvo Metrics, and uh, five years uh, with another small advisory firm called McKinsey. Yeah, Natalie, yeah, Natalie serves as co-chair and board for Outward Bound California. 
Another great follow on Twitter at N-A-T-A-L-I-E-M-C-C-U-L-L. Welcome, Natalie, to Disrupt TV. Thanks so much. I I was going to volunteer that you could give up my slot. I was enjoying the previous interview so much. It was incredible. It, it, yeah, glad to be here. 51 books. Uh, yeah. Believe it or not, we had Dr. Atali on our show a few months ago, and he's the author of, I think, 80 books, 80 or 83. So I Some, just don't know how these extraordinary people... Well, well, wow, we've got to get a writer. That's really what it is. Yeah, like, yeah, we found, we found the secret. Okay. And, and, you know, and, and now this is really, you know, we, we got to find some upskilling here in ourselves, man. Like, we're, we're falling behind, Paula. This is happening. Well, there is a connection there, right? As he was talking about coaching, I was really leaning in on that because at Guild, which I can talk a little bit about, we really believe that um, coaching is a critical part to helping people identify what they could be in the future that's different from what they are right now, and then work through and persist in the skilling journey that they need to go on to advance their career. So that's a really an integral part of, of our whole mindset. It really was connecting to, to what he said. You know, yeah. I don't think I had coaching probably probably 10 years after my after grad school, after professional career, when I think about someone who was not just a sponsor and a mentor, but, but a coach, it, it was probably a decade into my career before I can, you know, identify someone who was really teaching me how to, you know, yeah. be a better so professional. Imagine being a cashier at Walmart and getting access to that, to think through what might be your next role, what might be a way for you to move into an even better career opportunity I mean, at Guild, we have a saying that um, uh, opportunity, uh, or sorry, that talent is everywhere distributed equally, but opportunity is not. And so, so we are on a mission to help the roughly 88 million Americans who don't have the skills for the jobs of the future to get themselves those skills so that they can move into family sustaining wages. Um, uh, for themselves and their family. So that's that's what we're all about. That's a big number, 88 yeah. million. Let's take that's a step right. back real quick and, and think about where we are. I mean, think about how crazy it is. We've got something like 11 million jobs unfulfilled. We've got 5 million people looking for jobs. Um, and I think you and I talked about this sometime back. It's like, there's 6 million people missing. Where'd they go, right? And we've got all these folks that are trying to, there's a mismatch between jobs and, you know, opportunities. So so this is kind of like the, the, the layup as to, you know, what's happening. Um, what are you guys doing about it? Like, why is that the fact? And how do we get here to this point? Yeah, so at Guild, we have um, invested in a solution that we call the Career Opportunity Platform. Mm -hmm. And it is a solution to help employers invest in their employees so that they can get the skilling and the education and advance themselves in career pathways to the jobs of the future. So there's been a, a reckoning, I would say, in the last 18 months that has really shifted the, the relationship between employers and employees. And employees need more and they demand more from their employers. We call it, uh, they want pay for today, uh, work with purpose and a pathway for tomorrow. It's it's the new three P's, if you will. Um, and that pathway for tomorrow is the thing that Guild is all about. So we work with really the largest employers in the company to help them paint a picture for their employees about what their future pathway could be, regardless of their starting point. So this is this is what is unique about Guild and our 
our partners is that a lot of companies invest in skilling, um, but they do it largely for their white collar workforce. It's not something that is necessarily given access to all of their employees. But with Guild's partners and our employers, we really embrace that notion that my next data analyst or my next IT specialist or whatever could be right here working in my restaurant or my factory or my retail operation, what have you. And we want to make those opportunities available to our entire workforce. So we help employers um, provide employees for, throughout their organization with support and skilling and education to get to those next jobs. You know, it, it's amazing the importance of understanding the transferability of skills that you have. So I could be a cashier at Target and, uh, you know, I'm an English major. I can write well. I can communicate well. But I suspect a cashier at Target or, you know, uh, 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 someone working at a Chick-fil-A, they may not realize that the skills that they have is exactly what marketing organizations are looking for or service-oriented organizations in technology or any other financial government sector. Yeah. So how do you how do you educate the learners that the skills that you have means there are career opportunities outside the industry you serve? And can you talk about industries outside of perhaps retail, which you reference, and maybe fast food? What are, what are some of the other industries where companies are partnering with Guild to really ensure career mobility for their, for their, for their employees? Yeah, well, maybe I'll take the first half first, and then we'll sure. talk about how applicable this is across industries, because there's really a two-sided equation here around changing hearts and minds. One part of the equation is helping workers and employees think about what they're capable of and what their ambitions are and what it would take to get them from where they are today to where they, they could be. And we think about that as um, this notion of occupational identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you, you think about it, probably the three of us uh, I don't know, making assumptions, but maybe grew up in households where we had easy access and visibility into a lot of opportunities that were out there in the world. We could see the jobs that were um, possible and, and envision pathways. But a lot of folks uh, in this country don't have that same visibility. They aren't aware of what that there are jobs in data science or program management or you name it, right? And they and so that really is the first thing um, is helping giving them more visibility into what's available to them and what it would take to get there. And then helping them say, that could be me. Yeah. A lot of folks in this country have had a really bad uh, relationship or experience with education at some point where they have come to feel that I'm not good at education or education is not the right thing for me. So this is where the coaching really comes in at Guild is we we help uh, all workers across the board understand what the opportunities might be and then have the confidence to say, hey, I could do that. You know, maybe nobody in my family ever went to college before, but I think I could. Let me try. Let's see what that would take for me. Or it doesn't have to be college. It could be a certificate. It can be a, a lots of different types of scaling. So I think that's one big piece of the equation is helping all your workers get access to a vision of what's possible for them. And what's really cool is that we work with employers to really tie that to the jobs that they have. So it's not this really conceptual thing. It's like, okay, I'm a company. I need 5,000 more workers in the next 10 years, and I need them to fulfill these jobs. Let me help make that really real. 
The second piece of the equation is changing the hearts and minds of hiring managers and employers. We really have to break down some of our preconceived notions around what it takes to do a job and get past the just the degrees, right? Like we're not all trying to hire Stanford MBAs. We need people, we need to focus on what is the skill required for the job we're trying to do and how do we make sure that the people have those skills? So for us, yeah, we have a lot of big retail partners like Walmart and Target and restaurants like Chipotle. Uh, we have a saying at Gill that Chipotle is the fastest path to the middle class because they have minted so many wow. uh, restaurant managers. A restaurant wow. manager at Chipotle can make is a six-figure salary. Wow. And the vast majority of those restaurant managers started as just frontline workers, you know, on the yeah, line, sure. um, work their way up. Yeah. Um, but uh, actually, like where we're seeing huge momentum right now is in financial services and in healthcare. I mean, there is just a crisis in healthcare right now around um, skilled workers, particularly nurses, nurses assistants, phlebotomists, a whole bunch of new technical terms that I probably didn't know anything about five <laughs> years ago, but now I'm intimately familiar with. And that's where those employers are really thinking differently about where they find talent. You can't just go poach talent you know, from the world anymore. You have to invest in your own people and build your own internal talent pipeline. That's so rewarding work. Like your company yeah. is changing the trajectory of individuals and their families and their community. Just bring you tremendous joy being at Guild. Uh, just, it's amazing. It's amazing work. It, uh, it is, you know, and I was, it, when we were talking to the previous speaker, you know, I was thinking about happiness and life's purpose yeah. and Guild is a mission-driven company. We are on a mission to unlock opportunity for America's workforce. And, um, you know, at this stage in my career, I'm, I'm, I feel so grateful to be at a company that is a great business and is doing something to help make the world a better place. It is part of what wakes me up every morning and gets me excited to go to work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Go ahead, Ray. Oh, I don't know if we lost Ray. Ray, are you still there? Okay, uh, I, I think we may have lost Ray. So um, where there are movements uh, over the last 12 to 18 months that you think marked a shift in the labor market. I mean, we're at 9.1% inflation. There are all these macro uh, economic conditions like war. Uh, and, and, and of course, that certain sectors have lost incredible value, the tech sector, the crypto sector. And so people are struggling. Right? And, and, and what have you noticed in terms of shifts in, in the labor market in the last year, year and a half? I mean, it's a pretty unusual scenario, macroeconomic, I think, scenario that we're going into. So everything you just said is true. And what is also true is that there's an incredible labor shortage still. Um, and that labor shortage is on all dimensions. It is for entry level jobs. Like, I don't know, the local restaurants here in Hawaii are not open at any normal time because they can't staff themselves. And that labor shortage is true for entry level jobs and it's true for the, the skilled jobs. I think actually it was the Digital Institute from Salesforce that published a really fascinating article in January that said that 76% of uh, people globally don't feel that they have the skills for the jobs of the future, right? That's just a huge, huge problem for 
for our society, for the people in our society, not to mention our companies and our industry. And so uh, I think what I've seen as the big shift um, is really an awakening that employers have had uh, in the last year and a half to how much they need to invest in their employees. And when they do that, how differentiating it becomes. Like, you know, it is becoming clear who are the employers of choice, who are the employers that really care about their people, who invest in their people, who create what we call cultures of opportunity for their people. And that is what those companies are gonna win. You know, the war for talent, I, I'm probably betraying my age here, but when I was back in the day at McKinsey, we were talking a lot about the war for talent. And I just think that that, that is a really important concept and it's real and it's, it's again, it's happening now. So, you know, when, when we're talking about this, uh, there's some companies that have been doing fully funded education. Uh, they've been actually funding, you know, uh, you know, everything from, you know, people in fast casual dining to retail to even healthcare. And, and of course, you know, consulting firms have been famous for that. Um, where do we see other areas where organizations are making that type of investment saying, look, we're going to build out the career path for you? Because it sounds like since we are of a shortage, as people put it, we have a full employment recession. Like that's a crazy term, right? We have a full employment recession and we can't find enough people uh, from, from a work perspective. Uh, how do you see that funding mechanism working? Are, are corporates just going to jump in more to, to create those opportunities? I do. I do think that uh, industry is, it needs to and is stepping up and it's, across the board. I mean, we we are talking to employers in every single industry that you could name, right? Um, it is not constrained to any one vertical. It is across the board. It's a labor issue that everyone is facing. Um, and the investment, you know, there is a mind, a mind shift, set shift that happens. Um, most companies, the vast majority of companies, 75% or more of large companies offer some kind of tuition reimbursement. Okay. And that's like an old school thing. Um, but mm -hmm. I like to say that that is about as strategic as pet insurance. No offense to anybody who is selling pet insurance, um, but it really is not a very strategic thing. It's very low uptake in the employee population, usually like far less than 1% of employees ever take advantage of it. And it's inequitable. It's We call it unintentionally inequitable because it usually requires a worker or an employee to, to go find a program themselves, to go pay for that program and then kind of cross their fingers and hope that their employer will pay them back for it. Right. And mm -hmm. oftentimes they are picking programs that may not be appropriate for them or not well suited for them. So they may not succeed. They may not finish. They may end up with debt associated mm -hmm. with that. And the, the truth is that, you know, we, we have this stat that the average American has something like $400 in their savings. Uh, account like the average American cannot afford to put up two thousand dollars or whatever it is for and to invest in themselves and their skills. And that's where the companies are saying, okay, the way that we used to do this, it doesn't work anymore. It does it's not strategic. It's in in essence a waste of money. It is a very low ROI investment. How can I take that same concept, make it equitable across my entire workforce so anybody can do it? People don't have to front the money themselves. So I, the employer, will pay directly. And I, the employer, also can guide employees into programs that I know are good for them, will actually be lead them to successful jobs and career opportunities in the future. So it really is a reinvention of something that has been around for a long time, but been around in a pretty non-strategic way. It's taking that 
and doing a big judo and say, let's take that investment and make it make it a strategic investment. I love that. I love the judo reference. Uh, um, okay, uh, a phrase you used which resonated with me was cultivating a culture of opportunities. And yeah. Chipotle, as an example, fastest path to middle class with store managers earning six-figure salaries. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It, it's really cool. It's I love. I'm going to use that phrase from now on. Culture of opportunity. What, what is the impediment to creating that? How do you? How do you? When you when you work with businesses and you talk to them about the importance of investing in employees and making sure they have the right skills and they have career mobility and they have hope and inspiration and motivation to become better versions of themselves. Uh, every breath is a new me, as Dr. Goldsmith said. Yeah, right. um, is it middle management? Is it the CEO? Is it, how do, you, how do you guide companies to get there? Yeah, I love that question. You know, with, like with any good um, visionary change type of thing, of, oftentimes it requires leadership at the top yeah. to be uh, able to see the big picture and the long game. Um, so there's a lot of pressure around earnings always. And in particular sure. now, you know, Wall Street is really demanding uh, that companies deliver on their earnings. So any type of investment comes under a lot of scrutiny. And um, the, I mean, the good news for us, and we've had this vetted numerous times, is that this is a really high ROI investment. We see on average about $2.85 ROI for every dollar. So I like to say oh. you can do well and do good at the same time with this type of investment, which is not always true, right? Um, and so uh, I think there is still, even with that, there's a lot of scrutiny. There's a competition for resources. So leaders have to say, hey, I am going to make a bet. I'm going to make a bet on my employees, on my culture, my talent workforce, and I'm going to make that bet for the long run. Like I know that my business is going to transform over the next decade, and I need to be able to have the workforce that will keep me successful, not just now, but 10 years from now. Um, so it requires vision from the top. And then there is, as I said earlier, you know, there we all have us have these inherent biases. It's super. It's much easier when you look at a resume to be like, oh, this person, you know, like I said, went to X Y Z school that I recognize. Therefore, I'm gonna I'm gonna interview them for the job. And we have to kind of take down some of these biases and say, actually, I'm gonna I can see that this person has invested in themselves that they have the some of the requisite skills that they need for this job. And I'm going to give them a chance to try that job, to make put themselves on a path. And so there is a little bit of a re-education. A lot of folks are talking yeah. about it, about moving away from um, some of these external uh, signals to a better skills inventory view. And that's a big thing that we do um, at Guild is that we help employees uh, kind of catalog and understand what their starting point is from Baseline. a skill perspective, yeah. build the ones that they need to get. You know, it's not, they're not, you can't go from cashier to data analyst overnight. You have to invest in education sure. to get there. But then once you do that, you should be given an opportunity to use those skills. I mean, I'm definitely taking advantage of a competency-based approach. So, so we're definitely That's doing right. So, but we're with Natalie McCullough, president and CEO of Guild. And of course, you can follow our Twitter at Natalie McCall, uh, one of our BT150 winners. Congratulations, of course, and hopefully see you at Half Moon Bay. So, hey, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks so much. Thank you. <laughs> right. And then, of course, we end the show where we bring Hall of Fame hitters to hit a grand slam. 
And so you're going to end with two exceptional and very successful co-founders. You have Matthew Gould and Brent, uh, Brayden Pizeshki, who are the co-founders of Unstoppable Domains, which is the number one number one provider of NFT domains. I, I believe, Ray, uh, I see yours uh, on your Twitter handle. <laughs> Matthew uh, is CEO and co-founder of Unstoppable Domains, an NFT domain name provider working to onboard the entire world or as much as possible <laughs> to Web3. Prior to Unstoppable Domain, Matthew founded multiple software companies in several industries. Braden is also a co-founder and principal engineer at Unstoppable. Uh, you can follow their company on Twitter at Unstoppable Web, W-E-B. Welcome, Matthew and Braden, to the Shrub TV. Uh, happy to be here. Great to be here, yeah. Thank you, thank you for being here. here. We're excited to have you here, but more importantly, how did you guys meet? Let's start there. Let's go with the origin story because I don't think it's fully been told. Like, what were you meeting? How did you guys get together and start the company? And you both look very young, so you must have started what a 10, 15? Like when did you start a company? High school friend. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Braden's the youngster, so uh, we can get to him in a second. But yeah, we we met in San Francisco. You know, the magic of San Francisco uh, is where technologists all get together. Um, and we actually met at a uh, coding camp of all places, uh, working on projects, and uh, we just fell in. And I was smart because I noticed that at, at uh, whenever someone had a question, Brayden always had the answer. And so that's the person you want to be, you know, when you, when you're working, when you're building things, that's the person you want to be working with. But, you know, honestly, Brayden has a pretty incredible story. Brayden, you were only 19, uh, when we got, yeah. when we got started right out of high school. Um, and you know, I thought it was a big move on your part to, you know, move to SF and really take the risk to build something. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, no internship, no CS degree. My dad was a college professor. So, um, you know, I knew I didn't want to go to college. <laughs> That's awesome. But, but yeah, no, I, we, uh, we met in San Francisco um, and then, you know, spent a year fiddling around and then, you know, we kind of got serious and went out for seed money and it's been kind of the, the startup dream, you know, that kind of week over week accelerator type um and what was that gravitational pull to Web3 technologies? And, you know, first time NFTs fell on my radar, uh, to be honest with you, was I think early last year with the Peeble $69 million uh, you know, sure. auction. And, you know, it hit me at that point. Okay, this is, and I think at the time in 2020, I think there was about 98 million spent on NFTs and we crossed the 40 billion mark last year, if I'm not mistaken. So mm -hmm. we saw this like rocket ship, but you guys five years ago are thinking about, you know, this movement. So how, yeah, well, was it was pull? a totally, it was a totally different world. There were no yeah. NFTs at the time. Sure. Um, yeah. The whole exactly. like NFT craze hadn't happened. Um, and, you know, we, we got into cryptocurrency because, um, and because it's like part of this web three movement, um, and really, like, in my opinion, the Web3 movement is all about, like, transparency on the web, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's, like, lots of, there's lots of talk right now about, you know, cryptocurrency and making lots of money. And, of course, people are not making any more money, right? <laughs> so people are feeling down. Um, but this, like, technology wave is going to last. And, like, the lasting effects of the technology, it's, like, data provenance, you know, is, like the root cause of so many issues on the internet today, you know, bots on Twitter, you know, fake news, all of uh, those problems can be solved 
using the technology that's emerging out of this uh, no. But, but, but do you feel a sense of like wind behind your sail? When you see Bitcoin cross 24,000 last week or Ethereum hit 1,600, 1, does the movement and the growth and the value of these uh, currencies, does that, does that create excitement and, 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 and motivation to further invest in, in, in the NFT space? Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and and uh, I'll take a little credit here because I was definitely in crypto before Braden made his way to San Francisco. Uh, and I was definitely trying to put on his plate as a technologist, hey, what can you use these things for? And Braden kind of outlined this a little bit. But, you know, early on, we were focused on the non-financial use cases of, yeah. uh, of crypto and blockchain and, NF, you know, NF, even before NFTs existed. You know, I was looking at things like supply chains uh, and reputation uh, for tracking and how can we reduce costs for transactions by using these um, technologies. And that's what I was putting on Braden's plate. And uh, to your point about the price, what I was able to convince Braden of and how I got him to decide to found a company with me is it doesn't matter what the price does, right? Because if you're building something that's going to save people time, help them make money, then it, it doesn't matter, you know, token goes up, token goes down any of these, you know, Bitcoin price goes up, Bitcoin price goes down. There's going to be ways in this industry, but overall the adoption has been very strong up to the right. And if you look at adoption curves for uh, crypto, it's been 60% year over year user growth for a decade. And, you know, now we're at like 200 million people who have been exposed to cryptocurrency, you know, the Coinbase or some kind of initial introduction to it. And that number is going to get to the billions. Like we, and I remember when I talked to Braden, it was actually a pretty easy pitch. And we've been working on several projects around reputation in the space. Um, we did a thing about verified news, for instance. Uh, but the, the pitch was basically like, if everyone on the planet is going to be using cryptocurrency, then um, everyone on the planet is going to want to have an NFT domain to send and receive cryptocurrency. Because if you've ever used Bitcoin and cryptocurrency before, they have yeah. these really long hex addresses, yeah. right? And God yeah. forbid you type the wrong address. Yeah. Because it's definitely not idiot proof, uh, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And then for Braden, I remember he was just like, it's just like IP addresses on the internet. Right. Yeah. Uh, and before we had DNS for the internet, you had to go type in an IP address to get to a, a you know, uh, a website and yep. you needed to have a naming system to make that easier. So that was the easy pitch. And then, you know, really rolling that into digital identity, you know, how could, because these are consumer owned, um, how can people build reputation around their NFT domain, just like businesses build reputation around their .com domain. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're seeing this shift, right? I mean, you're kind of outlining web two to web three centralized to decentralized. Uh, this notion of, you know, a vendor or seller that actually has no transparency to full transparency to buyers going from, you know, being sold their data or their, their data being sold from under them to, you know, actually being able to transact in anonymity. I mean, we're seeing that shift, right? That inversion is happening right now. Um, when we look at that con continuation of that trend, like, you know, why are people actually jumping in? Like, is, is it the opportunity? Is it the notion that they're doing something different? Like, where do you sense that from your customers? Well, I actually think that it's broader than that. Like, so right now people are spending 50% of their time online, but less than 0.5% of the things that they own are digital. And we expect that to change dramatically over the next mm -hmm. decade as people want to own more of the things that they interact with in the digital world. We have Mark Zuckerberg spending $10 billion to build, you know, Facebook metaverse or whatever. Uh, and that just tells me the amount of digital assets in the future is just going to be huge. 
Um, and people are going to want to own those things. And that's what crypto and blockchain lessons do. And we think that, you know, one of the first things you're going to want to own is going to be your identity, your NFT domain. Um, and, you know, just like you picked up, you know, R.NFT, like we think people are going to want to own these so that they can have a consistent identity across all of the different places they interact um, in their digital lives and that those that digital life is going to be a bigger part of your life like a lot of people get a lot of their community now online either on twitter or reddit or facebook or all these social networks are forming and we see just more and more of that happening so if i'm going to be spending <laughs> four hours a day which is probably way too much on my phone then you know i probably probably a lot of the things that i own should be digital and it's just not that way yet and that's what that's what's actually happening behind these nfts and all this it's a societal shift to a more digital economy uh, and that means that there's going to just be a lot more money here than there was uh, a decade ago Braden, do you think every company is going to be disrupted by a version of itself on a chain uh, when you talk about no. like I mean, I no. don't think the, the disruption is going to be just like something is on the blockchain and therefore it's, you know, disruptive. Um, you know, the, the kind of long trusted, play here. More the, scalable, more yes, secure. I do, think, I do think that's true, right? Like things are definitely going to be more transparent. You know, um, I was talking earlier about provenance, right? Ownership mm -hmm. of data is really important and something that I think is like kind of under underappreciated, right? Like privacy. This whole privacy movement has come along and that is because people are starting to value their data more right and then once once we kind of differentiate between like third party and first party data right so that yeah. you actually own your data and and people yeah. value that data more like yeah. markets are going to shift right like as soon as the users and as soon as the money starts um coming in like businesses more and more businesses will start adopting these practices um yeah, no, yeah. Right. okay. Go ahead. Well, I, was just, I, well, I was just gonna say, but that doesn't mean we're not gonna have uh web two companies move into web three. And I was talking to somebody else, and it's not like there's one internet, right? You, yes, we have what web one companies still, right? Like, then we have web two companies, we're gonna have web three companies, but there's really just one big giant internet, and all of these things are more valuable when they all connect in to each other. So an example that I like to give with portable identity identity is, you know, imagine that you're doing your shopping on Amazon, right? Yeah. And then you want to move your shopping, you want to go shop at uh, Target. Uh, and right now, it, you can't take your data with you. But in the future where you can travel with that data from one place to another, um, these the shoe shop size, uh, the type of clothing that I like, all this information that I'm using when I'm shopping on Amazon, I can actually take with me when I sign in uh, to Target. And then my consumer experience is going to be much better when I interact online. And so that's just for online retailers. Uh, you can expand that out to any type of data about yourself that you want to travel around like your healthcare, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then that's going to make those experiences a lot better for consumers. And so those are really traditional Web2 companies. And it can even be real world companies. Like when you go into you know, your Starbucks, there's a database there too. So all of these different places are going to be interacting with um, Web3 protocols, no matter what they are now. And I think that Web2 businesses are going to be very competitive in the Web3 space. Uh, and Web3 space is going to be very competitive in Web2 space. Lots of crossover. So, so, so Matt, Braden, fast forward a few years from now, my driver's license, my, my school diploma, my healthcare records, are all these NFTs? They're portable, yes. they're accessible? They're well, they're digital assets, right? I mean, already, um, 
we've like talked to educational institutions who are investigating putting credentials on the blockchain or yeah. you know blockchain tech you know passports are now um sorry Braden. does that mean that instead of a apple ios i can go to an android ios education model where i can take my english courses at harvard my computer science at mit my philosophy at yale in other words i can have a decentralized uh, credential system because it's on a chain and they all agree that my diploma doesn't have to come from one institution. Do you see that as a... It could definitely happen that way. Okay. Um, I mean, at the very least, it could simplify school transfers. My, yeah. Uh, yeah, my yeah. brother transferred yeah. schools and it's, it's a, like a really hard process. <laughs> you grew up with a professor, so you know all the headaches and heartache. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, get, I get that. But this data portability's notion is, is great, yeah. right? We're data talking about this need for privacy. One of our good friends, Richie Atwari, was talking about how you know, you know, your personal data, your genomics, all that information should be a property right. Because once it is, then there's value exchange. And once there's value exchange and permission, you can actually do a lot with that and, and, and really bring right. that to you. Right. And so that data portability movement and privacy is really you know, one of those things that's left. I mean, we just need to make that a property right, and then we can actually apply all the existing rules uh, that are there, uh, which, which is pretty wild. Um, hey, I wanted to ask you a question really about what's going on with uh, work, right? We've been checking in on people on remote work, future of work, what's happening. Uh, how are you guys structured, right? Are people coming to the office? Are people coming to the office on a few days? Are people saying, screw the office? Uh, have you been virtual? Like, who are you on that spectrum of work? Yeah, yeah. So uh, we are remote only and we have been remote uh, since we were very, very early. And I take 100 uh, percent fault for this uh, because because uh, I work too hard. And so we, we actually started off in a very small uh, working out of my apartment in Las Vegas. And we had, you know, five guys coming to work in my living room. And it didn't take very long where they said, Matt, we can't be in the same room with you because you're too intense working 14 hour days. Like you can't, you can't work like that. So no joke, we went 100% remote, even though we all lived in Vegas and we called in from all separate homes. And then we learned how to do it. And because we did it very early before COVID hit, um, we just, yeah, exactly. And then we took a lot of good advice from people who do it well, uh, like GitLab, for instance, and, and seeing how they put those structures together. And the things that we have found are important is like, you really do need to commit. You need to be 100% remote with absolutely everybody. You need to invest in the remote tools on the team. You got to teach your team how to record videos. We have training sessions, you know, how to publish things asynchronously, how to respect other people's time zones. Um, and then the last thing is you have to increase the amount of feedback that your team is giving to each other. And that's positive and negative. And people don't realize it, but like, we like to say you need to do uh, three times as much on positive feedback and twice as much on negative feedback. And so if you have some neg negative nice. feedback to give to give people, just make sure you follow it up in writing. And if you have positive feedback, you need to make sure you reinforce that two or three times because guess what? If we don't have a way for me to like just walk yeah. by and say, hey, yeah. Ray, thanks for doing that thing. It really made my life better. You know, you want me to grab a cup, extra cup of coffee, coffee for you on my way to the break room, you know, or if you need a Snickers bar, that type of gratitude, you just don't get remote. And yeah. that's really, that's really the, the human touch to making remote yeah. work. And I think we love it. That's awesome. yeah. Matt, you're still uh, you're still applying the same recruiting principle. Find the person that has all the answers and try to get them to join the company, like you did with Braden. Yeah, yeah. So, like you know, the 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 job of running an organization, you gotta you gotta set the vision, you gotta find the right people, and you gotta put them on the right thing. Uh, and that's always been the key to success on building any organization. We definitely do that at Softable. And one of the things about remote that makes that awesome is that it just opens up a lot more opportunities. So we were hiring people, you know, from Chicago and Ohio and all these other places, but pre COVID that no one else would touch. And we would also hire people 
who were in that bay and said, Hey, you know, I'm looking to relocate back to close to my parents, you know, maybe they're right, in Texas. Right, right. And we were there, that's hundred percent okay with us um, as part of that. So it really helps uh, differentiate you in the tech industry. I don't think tech is going back. Tech will be remote and more remote going forward. I can't speak for other industries, but tech does bring a lot of office space. So I would want to be a landlord. <laughs> you know what? I really had a wonderful time at your retreat in Scottsdale. I think that was wonderful watching those teams come together. You're right. You did how to bring people. Are you based in Las Vegas? Is that kind of where like you both are at the moment? And you just have to be arena at the moment, chilling out or what's, what's going on? Uh, we move around. Uh, I think so, our paychecks don't come from Vegas. You're officially but, uh, digital uh, we're, Everyone yes. is worldwide yeah. yeah when we submitted our paperwork we tried to put uh metaverse as a as like the location they did not accept that uh so i actually i actually don't know where our official office headquarters is uh, i think we may have ended up submitting it as blank but you know we're u.s based you know that is where we are we are we have people all across the country in at least 14 plus states um and you know we tend to stay here for the long term but yeah we like being mobile that's so why we like being remote you're still, put, you're still putting in 14 hour days you know, uh, yeah, I try to pare it back a little bit. I got a, a family that I have to look care, take care of, right? And you can't run yourself at a sprint forever. But you know, anyone who owns a business will tell you it's 100%. not it's not a eight to five, right? You got to put 100%. in the extra time. It's never an eight to five job. Yeah, Matt, yeah. Oh, founder and CEO at Unstoppable Domains, and Brandon Pazeski, founder and uh, full stack engineer at Unstoppable Domains. You can follow them both at Twitter at Unstoppable. Uh, web and thank you so much for being on the show and we've got to catch up we'll see you in the green room so thanks guys thanks it's uh remarkable to uh you know to see the passion the vision the foresight you know matt talking about getting into crypto it sounded like six seven eight ten years ago early early trailblazer uh and then you know recruiting smart people to really go to it you know in a blue ocean strategy and in a, in a web three space that's frankly, still in the first inning of a game um, and, and then growing to becoming a number one NFT domain provider. That's pretty cool. It's really great. It's really great. Ray, please do us a favor and try to recap what we learned over the last hour. Um, you know, I was always results driven and I thought empathy was cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I knew higher ed and education industry for lifelong learners are going to get disrupted for sure. It sounds like Google's doing that. And, uh, and yeah, it's amazing to see two trailblazers talking about, you know, the, the future of the internet and, uh, and, and, and chain. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, coach, coach Marshall always has something very interesting to say. And I think those are life observations. And, and I think, you know, as, as we start to learn more about ourselves and how people work, right. I mean, the, the patterns that worked in the past aren't necessarily working uh, going forward, right. We've got a very, very different environment, but there are still human patterns that you still have to you know consider. And I think, you know, when, when he looks at breaking those barriers or breaking those expectations, it's for those people who are high performing, right. They were high performing. They got there for a reason. And now they've got to go back and reassess how they got there. You know, what do they want to do with their lives? And we to the next stage. It doesn't mean that you can't do the things that those folks did to get there. Uh, if you try to do it the other way around or the sequential order, you might not be successful. And I think that people should really understand that before they do that. But but along the way, right? I mean, if you're trying to improve yourself and get to the next level, I mean, what we are seeing is this need for upskilling, right? And, and and we've really got to find that talent, right? There are a lot of opportunities. People just don't know about those opportunities. Opening those up actually create a lot of, you know, a lot of advancement that can be had. Uh, and, and more importantly, as we start to see the world of automation taking into play, I mean, people have to figure out what they like doing versus what they want to do versus what they need to do. Mm. And, and that upskilling and that opportunity to get into that educational uh, motion is there. Uh, but but what is neat about watching two founders get together and create you know, a, a, an organization or company is that they go through that learning process as well. 
right? They've got to figure out their leadership. They got to figure out how they're going to be successful, how they make their team successful, right? And it really brings us all together, especially when we're seeing, you know, new companies being created, you know, post pandemic, you know, companies that are actually, you know, taking advantage of this really bizarre market. Like we, we're in a very, very unusual economy, market uh, conditions, like we've never seen anything like this before. True. And I think it's gonna be one for the history books. So back Absolutely. to you. Absolutely. Well, next week, we have episode 287. Ray, we're getting inching up close to 300 episodes, which will cross this year, this calendar year. We have Sudar Bamboo, if I'm pronouncing that right, CEO of Zoho, as our as our first guest. Kathy Aziz Naran, who's the chief digital officer at Ho. Oh, medical, yeah. And we have Joel Bynes, author of the Metal Economy. <laughs> metal economy. We have great authors that come on our show. And you see the stack behind me. Almost 99% of these are books from authors who've been on our show. I got to get Dr. Goldsmith's uh, bestsellers on the stack for sure. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this week's session. All four guests were brilliant. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you for watching. Bye, everyone. Bye, everybody. See you in the green room. <laughs>